guys. This is a special crossover episode of Words for Granted featuring Steve Guerra from the History of the Papacy podcast. In it, we discuss the linguistic influence of the King James Bible, biblical idioms that have become commonplace in modern English, and the topic of podcasting in general, among a few other things. You can think of it as an epilogue to the Biblical Etymology mega-series that concluded about a month and a half ago. For longtime listeners of the podcast, I think it will be a real treat because A, you'll get to hear me talk completely off-script, and B, I reveal the secret story behind the birth of words for granted. I talk about how I became interested in historical linguistics in the first place, which, believe it or not, involves going to the bathroom. If you love the show, I'd like to give you a quick reminder that you can make a monthly donation at patreon.com slash wordsforgranted because, yes, every little bit does add up when you're running an independent ad-free podcast. Without further ado, here's the conversation between me and Steve. I hope you love it. Thank you, everybody, for listening today. We have a really special collaboration episode of... Two great podcasts. Of course, we have Ray Belli of the Words for Granted podcast, and I'm Steve, and I host the History of the Papacy podcast. And Ray has and I came together on Facebook, I believe, or no, you sent an email to me about uh, exchanging introductions for our podcast, but then we got to talking and thinking that a collaboration episode could be in order because Ray is has done an, an entire podcast series in his show, Words for Granted, about the language in the new or in the Bible. So I thought, let's talk about the Bible. And well, let's we together decided to talk about the Bible. So maybe we'll start out, Ray, why don't you tell us a little bit about your Words for Granted podcast? Sure. Well, um, thanks for the introduction, Steve. Basically, uh, Words for Granted is a podcast that looks at how words change over time. And uh, it's it's not just about the Bible. I should make that clear to anyone who uh, doesn't know about the show. Uh, I do thematic miniseries, and uh, the most recent one that I wrapped up was about a biblical etymology. So... Um, yeah, I, I basically uh, chose like nine or ten words, and each episode focuses on the evolution of a single word and how uh, the meaning changes over time. Um, and it's basically, the, the podcast is is my way of using linguistics as a way of looking at uh, change in the world, whether that's cultural change, uh, historical change, religious changes. Um, I, I have found uh, almost accidentally that if you look at changes in words, uh, you can track history in that way. So uh, Words for Granted is not just a linguistics podcast or not just a history podcast, but kind of fusing the both of those topics. What are some other series you've done? Oh, I did uh, one on... Uh, technology. I did one on uh, Greek theater, days of the week. Uh, right now, I'm about to do one on the evolution of grammar words. Uh, for 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 a while, I was just doing. Uh, it, it was kind of a potpourri sort of thing, uh, but it, it, the the show naturally evolved into a mini series. So I think I've done maybe six or seven of those uh, in the last year. What made you get into podcasting? What made you feel that? Um a podcast would be a good thing to express what you're interested in? Oh, that that's actually a great question. Uh, I don't think I've ever talked about this on my show. Uh, well, my, my interest in etymology uh, actually happened completely accidentally and to totally randomly. And many, many years before uh, I started the podcast or I knew anything about linguistics proper. And funny enough, it actually has to do with, uh, the Bible. Um, and I will tell you this true story. Uh, it sounds like something I'm making up, but I was, I was, I was at a friend's house, uh, and I was in his bathroom and on the back of the toilet seat, uh, there was an art history book and I was just flipping through it and going about my business. And there was a Renaissance painting, uh, of, uh, the passion of the Christ. And I looked at the footnote and it said, uh, 
passios, the Latin word for passion, and it made a point of saying that uh, this was the Latin word for suffering. And I just thought to myself, whoa, this word for passion, this, this word passion comes from a word for suffering. Like, what does that tell us about uh, the, the way that we think or the way that we evolved? And then I just had this revelation that, oh my God, language changes over time. Uh, what other words have changed over time? And that that was probably when I was around 18 or 19 years old. And it, it just turned into an obsession, like, like a soft obsession, you know, it was something that I would, I would think about, uh, every now and then. And then I'd go through like a two or three week phase where I was Googling the etymology of every word that popped into my head. And I, I, I was like, Oh, I'd love to write a book about this or do a blog about this, but I'm nobody, <laughs> you know, I don't have a degree in this stuff. So who's going to listen to me. And then at like five or six years later, I discovered podcasting and, uh, totally got addicted to podcasts and I thought, you know what, this is a great medium for me to share this, uh, my, my obsession with etymology. And I, I, I spent maybe, maybe six months, eight months kind of honing the delivery and the style of the show. Uh, and then, yeah, Words for Granted was born. And it's been about two years now. That's interesting. Uh, so I assume that's not your academic background, is not in linguistics then? Uh, well, my academic background is in literature. Um, but of course that's very different than linguistics proper. Yeah. I found that linguistics, like the study of it, it kind of, it sucks the fun out of words. Oftentimes, um, I've taken a couple of linguistics classes and, um, my master's is in teaching and they did a lot of linguistics. And like, when you get into the nitty gritty of linguistics, you don't get to necessarily take the more fun routes, like with that etymology and that sort of thing. Right. Yeah. I, I've actually never taken uh, a single proper linguistics course in my life. I've, I've obsessively read linguistic linguistics textbooks on my own. Um, but I think maybe because it was an autodidactic process for me, uh, that I was still able to have fun with it. Um, and I, I certainly don't know everything about linguistics, that's for sure. Um, but I did have this affinity for etymology because I, I, I saw it as, as, as a, as a form of storytelling. Like when, when I was actually writing about etymology, I didn't feel like I was doing something dry and academic. I was telling stories in a creative way, uh, with beginnings, middles and ends, but I was just using, uh, fact based, uh, or, or historical linguistic based, uh, information to construct the narrative. If that makes sense. What about, wait, what about you? I guess I should, I should pass the ball back to you. Well, um, the, my podcast, the history of the papacy, I started it about five years ago. And it was really just a project like I was reading all these books and I've just kind of always dabbled a little bit in reading about church history. And just because I think kind of like you said with the words, it's a the breadth of it and the story. There's just so much there. And it was about... Um, a lot of the history podcasts were starting and there really wasn't anything to follow on it. Like the, there was, you know, there was obviously like the history of Rome, but you could really make up your own um, format. And I thought I just wanted, I thought some doing something really creative like that would be so much, just a lot of fun and you're bringing in technology and, you know, just a lot of different areas to tinker with. So I, think podcasting allowed me to bring in a lot of my different interests and put them together and um, not feel locked down into doing anything one particular way. Mm, yeah, that's that I, I, I feel the same way. Like if I didn't have this podcast, uh, <laughs> I would have no platform to, uh, to, to, to talk about this stuff. And I certainly couldn't justify the amount of time reading on my own. You know, I, I wouldn't be doing this amount of research just for myself. I mean, the part of the fun is that I get to share it with people. And, you know, over the last two years, I've acquired an audience. So it makes it worthwhile. 
Yeah, I think that's a huge part of it is the audience and it's the feedback. Like it's not just sitting in your room reading these books and then, you know, that's it. You know, you're meeting people like having conversations just like this, like people you, you know, likely never meet in your day-to-day life. And you're getting to talk about these things with, you know, with new people you meet like you and, you know, presumably over the course of years, thousands of people, tens of thousands of people are going to hear this and, you know, new conversations will develop off there. I think it's just an amazing, an amazing way to, for people to get in contact with each other and share things they're really interested in. Yeah, it, it sure is. I actually, I, I don't know if I mentioned this to you in the email, but I discovered your show through Gary Stevens' History of the Bible podcast. That was my introduction to oh, you. Oh, yeah. So it's like one thing leads to another. I mean, it's a, you know, a guy in Australia and then, you know, next thing you know, it's really, it's a really cool thing. Yeah. What was the podcast that kind of changed it? Like, like, like inspired you if, if there is one in particular, uh, to go and make your own. I had been kicking around the idea of starting a podcast, but it was really Ray Harris of the History of World War II podcast. He was the one I had contacted him over something, and he uh, was actually the one who helped me with a lot of the technical background on it. And then he had me as a guest on his show, which was really terrifying because it was the first time I would ever like set up a microphone or anything. But it was um, it was just a really you know it was really cool that somebody like him was mentoring. And I feel like in, a, in podcasting, people are very helpful and uh, quick to mentor other people. Yeah, definitely. Um, the The podcast that kind of changed it for me was the History of English podcast. I don't know if you know that one. Yeah, oh, yeah. Uh, I actually reached out to Kevin Stroud um, after I had only recorded maybe three episodes, and I, I really thanked him. Uh, I, I, I didn't even ask him to uh, do a shout out for wor- uh, of words for granted on the show. I, I was just so thankful. I was like, Kevin, thanks for your research. Thanks for your delivery. Um, I, I was kind of going through a weird mental space at that time, but I had discovered this bizarro podcast that covered two of my favorite things, which uh, were English and history. And just, it, it, it really blew my mind. And uh, I, I, at the end of the email, I mentioned, hey, I'm starting my own podcast, Words for Granted. It's about um, etymology, but I'm trying to make it like fun and engaging and uh, trying to use storytelling as the medium. And shortly after that, he mentioned it on his own show. And I know he actually listened to my show because he got the pronunciation of my last name right. He said belly and not belly, which is what most people say. <laughs> um, and like right out of the you know, right out of the gates, my audience just appeared. Like I, I got thousands of followers the next day because, uh, Kevin just, just on one of his episodes, he, he introduced my little humble show. So I, I'm really indebted to Kevin at, at, at least, um, at least early on. My audience certainly just came over from his podcast what do you think was that was that one of the first podcasts you listened to or were you into podcasts before it was that? the third podcast that i'd listened to first was um hardcore history the second was philosophize this by stephen west and the, yeah the third one was history of english yeah, there's and there's just so many out there. I think that's the amazing part of it is almost anything you can think of, there is a podcast out there on that's true. it. That's true. Now, um, when we get getting into the the Bible, and that was one of your uh, big series. What made you you talked a little bit about it? What do you think was one specific thing that you learned in the Bible that was really interesting, or that was like an aha moment? An aha moment. Well, uh, I guess one of my main takeaways is a lot of the things aren't what they seem. Uh, like when once you start digging into the nitty gritty and looking at the language of the original texts, and you start taking uh, historical linguistics into consideration, you realize that um, there's a lot more than meets the eye. Like for example, I did an episode on the word demon, and uh, I can't possibly uh, 
do justice to the full evolution of demon, but basically uh, it comes from a Greek word, uh, daemon, which originally, uh, maybe 500 years before Christianity even emerged, uh, it referred to uh, like lesser Greek deities. Uh, and then later on, it, it, it came to mean uh, the souls of dead heroes from the Golden Age. And then Socrates said that the, the, the daemon is, the vo- is like your consciousness. It's the, it's the voice in your head telling you to do good or to do bad. And then Plato says uh, daemons are actually imitations of uh, the main pantheons of gods because the gods are perfect. So when uh, we read in Greek myths that the gods are actually doing naughty, disreputable things, those are the daemons doing them because gods are perfect. Uh, so by the time we get to Christianity and the Greek authors are using this same word, daemon, in their own religious context, I mean, it, it, it has such a history of evolution. I mean, the word is just a word, but the, the word is like a portal into a cultural uh, cultural belief it's just so loaded so when when we read the word the modern english word demon we think of or at least i think of uh the little red guy with horns and a pitchfork and a forked tongue living in a world of flames but that's almost certainly actually it's definitely not what the uh authors of the new the original authors of the new testament meant when they were using that greek word daemon yeah, I think that's what's so cool, especially about um, something like the Bible. It's like one of those, um, like when they show the um, Grand Canyon and how all these different layers, you can't just take one layer out and understand it without all the context of everything else right. around it. And most people don't do that. I mean, especially the, well, I, I shouldn't generalize, but I think most modern Christians uh, un- unless you're a scholar or an academic, that's not the route that most take. Yeah, and I think we'll um, we'll get into it with the King James version of the translation of the Bible. But translation is so fraught with pitfalls, and it's it's really one of the most difficult things academics can do is translating one book from uh, a book from one language to another. I mean, it's not only the difficulty is not only translating from one language to another, it's translating from one time period to another. There was an interesting, um, I had learned about this book from Gary Stevens, actually. It's called The Orchard, and it's one of the most popular books in Israel uh, right now. And it, the word the book is packed full of wordplay, Hebrew wordplay, and he interviewed the person who translated it into English. And to try and translate something that's really wordplay into a different language, it's almost impossible. But it's you know that's the challenge in it. Right, right, right. Uh, I, I think the thing that interests me most in translation. Uh, are, are, are the things that we get wrong or the things that we misunderstand. Honestly, I, I'm, I'm more interested in the things that get lost in translation over time, rather from language to language, uh, just, just, just because mm-hmm. it, it's, it's so odd in, in a way that the most popular book of all time and like one of like, like a, a holy text that millions upon millions of people, uh, read and believe in it, it's ancient literature you know it's it's no different than uh the odyssey or the iliad um or or or, or any other work uh, i mean they're, they're not exactly all from the same time period but the 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 same scholarly rigor that goes into translating those works goes into translating the bible and i i, I just think a lot of people don't realize that. I mean, I, I was raised uh, Protestant, and I, I mean, just based on my own mother's knowledge of the Bible or interest in the Bible, like like none of what we're talking about, I'm sure, has ever crossed her mind. I mean, and no disrespect to her, it's just not her concern. Yeah, and that's one of the things that, like you say, how things come in through time when the King James Version was translated, when King James had his team translate the bible in the uh early 1600s was was it they 
we're really working in a very specific context where so much of the thought of the theology of the Bible had changed. You know, that affected the way that they were viewing the document mm, that they were right. translating. Um, and the... The, the 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 translation of the King James Bible is is very politically fraught uh, and, and and like nation, nationalistically if that's a word uh, nationalistically fraught in that uh, I, I think something like ninety percent of the lexicon of the the English lexicon of the King James Bible is is native Germanic words like they tried to avoid using uh, Latinate uh, words as a way of showing English pride and, uh, and Englishness. Uh, that, that's not exactly related to what you were saying, but again, just, just on this topic of, of yeah, another piece yeah. of the pie. Yeah. A, a, a translations with agendas. I also, I think I learned this in your episode that, um, the King James version had built upon two previous translations that it Occurred, That's right. Um, about a, one of them was a what about a hundred years before, and one was maybe a little bit before that. The Tyndale and the Wycliffe Bible, I think they were. Yeah. The 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 I, what is it? It's I think it's the Geneva Bible. With uh, the Geneva Bible was the Bible of the Calvinists, and that one. Uh, oh God! Wait, I don't I, I don't want to misspeak. Hold on. <laughs> <laughs> let me let me look at my notes. Sorry, one one second. Ah, yes. Okay. So uh, the Calvinists had the Geneva Bible, uh, which was the Tyndale Bible. Uh, t- I, I think Tyndale had died before he was able to complete a full translation, and uh, some expats, some English ex- expats, had gone to uh, Geneva and finished his translation there, hence the name. And then the Anglicans had the Bishop's Bible. So when the King James version was translated. It, it, it was more like a revision and a, like a fact checking. It, it was a way of kind of uh, taking what already existed and was familiar and perfecting it. I, th- I think something like only, it's like 15 or 20%, something like that, like a, a fairly low number uh, is, is, is actually original to the King James translation. The rest of it is, is basically a reworking or a direct uh, lifting of these two other versions. At that time in the early 1600s, wasn't English going through a really big change? Yeah, I mean, it, 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 it was. That was kind of the, the dawn of modern English um, as, as we know it. I mean, it, it's, it's very hard to put exact dates on these things, um, I mean, the exact dates don't matter, but uh, Shakespeare and the King James Version are basically the two major works of what we call early modern English. And by that, it's not exactly the English that we speak today. Uh, Some of the syntax is a little... uh, uh, it's, it's a little bit different. Some of the verb conjugations are different. Some of the pronouns are archaic, but basically... uh, we can understand it. You know, we, we can read Shakespeare uh, maybe with some footnotes and totally get it, whereas we can't do that with Middle English. So uh, <laughs> just just talk, talk about like how, how, how odd this is. How many other works of literature uh, are in an archaic version of our language that are still read today. I mean, it's basically Shakespeare and King James. That's it. But yet for some people, King James, the King James version is the authoritative version of the Bible. Um, But one, one of the main differences between uh, English in the early 1600s and the English today is just word to word, like semantic change, like, like words develop different connotations. One, one of the, best examples of this is the word meat. Do you know about the status of meat in King James? I think so, but why don't you uh, flesh it out a little? <laughs> no pun intended. Yeah, no. <laughs> uh, well, actually, there wasn't a whole lot of flesh in the word meat in King James. That's the whole thing. Meat basically meant food, all food. 
was called Meat. Uh, and it, I, I don't know, I actually did an episode on this, but I don't remember the exact date or the exact time period at which the meaning of meat was restricted to animal flesh. But certainly in the King James Version, there's no usage of the word meat that implies exclusively animal flesh. And so there's some really weird passages. Like there's, there's something in Genesis where, uh, uh, I, I believe God says uh, these herbs and vegetables and plants, they are meat unto you. Uh, talking about the the vegetation in the Garden of Eden. Uh, and Jesus, oh, apparently meat also was a word for like spiritual sustenance. So Jesus uh, refers to uh, himself as meat, <laughs> which is really odd. Uh, so, I mean, that's just an example where, again, you can't take things at face value. Um, but people still read the King James Version. Uh, like I said, my own mother, according to her, that's the authoritative version of the Bible. Uh, <laughs> but I, I don't know what she makes of the passage where Jesus calls himself meat or God refers to vegetables and plants and herbs as meat. Yeah, that's a, definitely part of it. Awkward phrasing like the, the Psalm 23 is a famous one. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. Now, there is that comma in there that says, you know, that says that it's not all one clause. But it sure does sound like if you're just listening to it is that you're saying the Lord is my shepherd and I don't want him. <laughs> yeah, sure. Sure, sure. <laughs> but then when it's, you know... Then you look into it more, it's using want in the f phrase that I shall not want is that I'm not, um, that I don't need anything. And some of the other, there's a couple of Bible uh, translations. I think it's the New International Version says, the Lord is my shepherd, I lack nothing. But that just doesn't sound as good either. That's a part of translation, especially when you're translating a literary document. You want it to sound good, too. Right, that's true. I mean, the Bible is not only a religious text, but also a uh, poetic one. And I think I think that that's got to be very difficult. And when you approach retranslating something, you don't want to translate it awkwardly and feel like you're you could be losing meaning too, even if the literal meaning is more closely to um, what people would understand. Right. Well, the the King James version has this amazing irony about it, and it's it's that. From a literary standpoint, it's pr pr pretty much agreed upon that it's a quote-unquote beautiful and timeless work of English literature. Um, but I believe uh, a a as part of um, King James's guidelines that he wanted his translators to follow, they were to make as literal a translation as possible. Uh, so... I, I don't know how they how they worked that one out. Uh, I actually I don't think I've I've read any discussion of this topic. Uh, how they were commissioned to make something beautiful, but also uh, as literal as possible, because most translations aren't as literal as possible in order to, you know, uh, preserve some poetic uh, integrity from language to language. Now, do you know with um, the King James Version and the other versions that that built on, were they translating from a Latin translation, or were they trying to use Hebrew and Greek texts, the original source documents, so to speak, to translate right. I, I th into English? I think they were using the original uh, Greek and Hebrew. I, I, I'm, I'm fairly certain of that. Uh, maybe in the previous versions, uh, they m maybe some of the translators used Latin, and that was part of why the King James Version was important, in order to make sure that those translations from Latin were correct by kind of fact-checking them against the original sources. Uh, but I'm actually not 100% sure on that. Because that all, that also adds in a lot of complications. You're really relying on that the people who are doing the translating are experts in Hebrew and Greek and Aramaic, 
and that they are scholars in all of the historical context of how those words were used at that time. That's a lot to ask for for a uh, person living in 1600s England. Yeah, I mean, there's a lot at stake in theory. I mean, I mean, the 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 difference between eternal salvation or damnation could depend upon the correct interpretation uh, of a particular text. And I mean, what else do you have to go on other than the written word? I mean, this kind of gets at the heart of of why I'm just so fascinated by this, uh, by by this, I mean, biblical translations, because unlike the Odyssey or the Iliad, where we read that today and we understand that it's a work of someone's imagination, uh, and these works represent people very different than we are today with different values and views, we read it and then we're done. Uh, the, the Bible isn't like that. Uh, it, it's the Christianity is a living religion, whereas Greek mythology and Roman mythology are not. You know, no one is at home figuring out what the best way to worship Zeus is based on the interpretation of a text. But that is the case with Christianity. That's another piece of the the whole story too. Is that in the 1600s and then the 1500s, the focus of the Bible had changed dramatically. It changed from being the tool of teaching to um, a personal item that people used for their to teach themselves. Really, with uh, Martin Luther and sola scriptura, the older traditions of like say the roman catholics or the eastern oriental orthodox they were used the bible i mean really if you think about it the bible really wasn't locked down into the canonical version until they um i want to say well it happened in bits and pieces it's kind of in the 300s but like not really firmly locked down until many centuries later so the the early church thought that the the canon was kind of a fluid thing and they were still trying to figure it out where once you get to Martin Luther it becomes the inerrancy where the bible has to be perfect it's it's kind of a change in the mindset of how the people are approaching mm, the text yeah uh that is not something that i've explored on my show which perhaps i should that definitely is uh something that could add some depth to the next time I do this, because I because I do plan to do the biblical etymology series round two, there was just like way too much for me to to, to cover. <laughs> After like four months, uh, I didn't want people to feel like it had turned into a, a Bible study podcast. So I think I think maybe maybe at the beginning of next year, uh, I'll be doing round two. Yeah, because that is that's almost a podcast, uh, the whole entire yeah. show in and of <laughs> I mean, itself. But it might not be necessarily the one you want to do. I mean, yeah, if if, if I did the research, I'd love to do it. I mean, all, all, all of this is amazing to me. One thing that I was wondering, and if it came up in your research, is um, especially from listening to like Kevin Stroud's History of English, English changed so dramatically at certain points um, from Old English to Middle English to all these different influences. Did the influence of these biblical language that had come into the language, did that change throughout these different periods? Um, Do you... What what exactly do you mean by the biblical language? Like did um maybe like the idioms that are from the Bible or um did certain certain maybe idioms or how people perceived Bible and how they used it in their language change from Old English to Middle English or when the French hmm, came to uh, town? That's a good question. Uh, I'm not exactly sure, but with regard to the idioms, uh, as, as I was researching, uh, because I, I, I guess we will get to that ultimately, uh, which is, which is what this podcast was originally supposed to be about is b- biblical idioms. I guess that was supposed to be the real, uh, meat and potatoes of this. But, um, a lot of the idioms that 
the internet claims originally come from the King James Bible. Actually, don't. Uh, I would say that the King James Bible was the popularizer of a lot of these phrases. Like, for instance, uh, apple of my eye and, uh, oh gosh, there was another one. Oh, at my wit's end. Uh, you know, you know, if you do like a quick etymological search, if you type in at my wit's end etymology, a, a not very academic site might say it's originally from the King James Bible. It appears there, but it actually first appears in, uh, Piers Plowman. Um, so I think the King James Bible really solidified, uh, a, a lot of idioms that might have been forgotten over time, like at my wits end is kind of an odd thing to say, at, at least in modern English. It doesn't make a whole lot of sense, lit literally speaking. Uh, and if it had just appeared in Piers Plowman, it probably wouldn't still exist today. Uh, but because the King James Version uh, took its cue from Piers Plowman, the King James Version kind of preserved that for all time. Oh, so you're kind of saying that the the translators were using sayings and idioms that were already in the use and applying Sometimes, them to like the instance, translation. Uh, the apple of my eye is, is a English idiom that goes back all the way to uh, King Alfred's writings. Um, and the, let's see, I, I, I don't know exactly the passages in which apple of the eye appears, but I know it appears several times in the King James version and the Hebrew from which it's translated doesn't use the word for apple. Uh, it, it uses the word for the dark part of the eye, interestingly enough. But for whatever reason, English for a long time had used the term apple to refer to pupil. And so that's how that got translated. And again, if, if you do a quick search, apple of my eye etymology, maybe the internet will tell you it's from the King James Version which it is, but it doesn't first appear there. Oh, that's fascinating. Are there any idioms? What are some idioms that did start in these early uh, English well, that, translations? That is hard then? to say. I didn't do research on literally every single one. Uh, in According to David Crystal, who did a much more academic uh, and thorough survey of this exact topic and actually wrote a book about it, he says there are 257 idioms in the King James Bible that are part of common English. And I, it's, it's hard to say exactly which ones first appear there uh, or, or, or which, which ones are borrowed from previous uh, or, 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 or earlier writings. But I'm, I'm, I'm not sure that that's so important because the main point is if the King James Version weren't written, it's very likely that none of them would exist. I mean, the King James Version basically fossilized all of them. And uh, should, should you, do you think we should read uh, a handful of these idioms so that our listeners know what we're talking about? Yeah, definitely. Why don't you uh, pick a couple of, um, of your favorites? Uh, okay. All things must come to pass. Ashes to ashes. Uh, fight the good fight, eye for an eye. Oh, there's an interesting one. Uh, eye for an eye is not unique to the Bible. I mean, that was in Hammurabi's code. And that, that, that was like a common idiom in uh, uh, the ancient Near East. But I think the first, uh, the, the Western worlds, it's certainly English's first exposure to that uh, phrase was certainly through the Bible, but the Bible didn't invent it. So in that case, that was using it in the literal sense that it eye for an eye, but it's become in our modern usage something like just um, tit for tat or something like right, that. Right, right, right. You know, nobody's going to actually go and take somebody's eye out. Yes, exactly, exactly. The haves and have-nots, that's an interesting one. Uh, how the mighty have fallen, labor of love, money is the root of all evil, put the words in her mouth, sour grapes, sign of the times. Yeah, I mean, you think, you look at these, and even if they aren't, um, they weren't all invented or um, for the King James Version, these are all things that people probably use a dozen of these in a day. 
no doubt. And uh, what's odd is that in, in some of these, there's an archaic grammar that's preserved. Like, for instance, in The Powers That Be, that's a biblical uh, quote. And The Powers That Be is not something that we would say is correct English. But um, that one comes from uh, the Geneva Bible. And B was actually an alternative way of conjugating uh, R in certain regions of England. So uh, normally we would say the powers that are. Um, but just because that was the way that that was translated, it kind of stuck. And even today we say the powers that be, not the powers that are. Do you know if anybody has done a research of how much of the King James version is comprehensible to like to a modern English? Would you like if somebody were to just pick up the um, King James version, what's the chances of them getting the full meaning out of that? Zero. Are they going to get like 80%? <laughs> or... I don't, I, I don't, I don't know. I don't think you can possibly read it and get its true meaning. If there is such a thing, uh, without a lot of footnotes and a lot of your own research. So kind of like Shakespeare in that yeah, way. Yeah, definitely, definitely. We didn't talk about this beforehand, but is there, did it come up in any of your research about newer translations and how they work? Yeah, well, newer translations, tr like, uh, oh gosh, there, there's definitely a more, rigorous scholarly academic sort of uh objective approach uh that has developed over time uh for instance oh let's see if i can think of an example off the top of my head um like the the king james version kind of indiscriminately uses the word hell uh to describe anything that isn't heaven that is with regard to the afterlife um but that word hell is translated from hebrew words that could just mean grave or as in grave stone or tomb uh death or even hades where there's not this implication of eternal torment and punishment but just this other realm of death that is in heaven. So, whereas the King James Version just uses hell in all of these contexts, I know that newer versions that are trying to go for more accurate translations, they will, you know, use the word for death or grave, or they even use Hades. There's an interesting one, too, that I came across um, in the Our Father. There's um, Give Us This Day Our Daily Bread, and that translation of daily bread it doesn't really capture anything of what the Greek term was. The Greek term was epiousios, which was a word that the Bible writer invented. Of, what do they call that? I think that has like a fancy name, oh, neologism or something. Neologism. Yes. And um, so the, translating that word, it, it, you really can't translate it with like one word. It's kind of... Uh, encapsulating like a whole concept that just doesn't easily get translated into one or two English words. And I think that's not the only one. Do you know exactly what that word meant or implied? I th it implied um, your, uh, the communion really that you're, um, you're take, you're not just eating a small slice of bread or you're not, you're, it's actually the, almost the exact opposite connotation you think you'd get with daily bread like you're just eating your regular food you're eating like the super food <laughs> the food like of the um you know the religious food the god food you're not just eating your daily food yeah so that translation kind of even the the that translation loses what should, what they were going for give us this day our daily ambrosia it might have been. Yeah, exactly. But, but how ridiculous is that? When you think about it, that's a term from a pagan religion. And it, it's like, it, to my mind, that would almost verge on uh, heresy to even like in, in, include that 
You, you see what I'm saying? How difficult this stuff is? But yeah, culturally, we know what ambrosia means. But of course, it's not the same ambrosia that the Greeks would use. But it's this some idea of holy food that we don't have a word for. And if you're using something, you have, you almost have to think ahead that is the context going to change on how we view a certain word? And is that going to change the is that going to change what we fundamentally think about this concept that we're trying to explain? Yeah, I mean, I think I think the answer is yes. And uh, looking looking at the evolution of the word demon, I think that's a perfect example of how that word has indeed changed by its adaptation to a new context. Yeah, that's just fascinating, and that's that's got to happen all the time in language. Mm-hmm. Oh, it, it certainly does, especially with. Uh, religious concepts. Uh, another example, uh, we, we don't have to go too deep into it, but another example is the word weird, which is a uh, concept that's kind of like fate and destiny uh, that was native to the Anglo-Saxon pagan religion. Um, but it doesn't exactly mean fate or destiny, and it has a whole complicated uh philosophy and, 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 and system of thought behind it that uh, when, when translators were, when, when English translators were using that word weird uh, to translate, you know, the, the Greek and Latin ideas of fate, it just, it just doesn't quite get it. You know, they're fundamentally different concepts. Yeah, that's a, that is just fascinating. That's it's so many uh, pitfalls for the translator and for the people who are reading the text. Right, and of course, I mean nowadays, weird just means strange. So it's it's, it's evolved even more. But that, but that, that's a major digression. I don't think we need to pursue that. But I, I think it, I think it proves your point. What do you think um, if you were to revisit this topic? What do you think the thing that was that you would like to um, dive into a, more? Uh, well, I mean, since we opened up this uh, this treasure trove of idioms, uh, I, I think looking at some of these in much greater detail, like episode length detail, might be really interesting. Uh, and also maybe looking at some biblical coinages, uh, such as scapegoat. Uh, that is an original one to the Bible. Uh do, do you know, or, or, or should, should I share the story of the scapegoat? Oh, yeah, definitely. So it literally means a scapegoat, as in the verb to escape. Um, but apparently scape was another way of saying escape. Like some people just dropped the initial E, and that was conventional up until the 1700s. Uh, so uh, the scapegoat... Uh, first appears in Leviticus. I have this here, uh, Leviticus 16.6. And the quote is, Aaron shall cast lots upon the two goats, one for the Lord, one for the scapegoat. And the idea was that the scapegoat would be ritually burdened with the sins of man and then driven away. Uh, but the Hebrew word for this scapegoat is azazel, uh, which some linguists have linked to a Hebrew stem, uh, which means to remove, which is how the translators of the Septuagint rendered it. Uh, I, I don't know what the Greek word is, but it means the sender away of sins. Uh, but modern linguists aren't all in agreement about uh, what that uh, Hebrew stem definitively means. That's just the consensus. But what I find odd is that Azazel is also the name of a demon, uh, and I, I, I don't know anything about that. Maybe, uh, did you have any insight into Azazel the demon? No, I, I never heard of that. Or if I did, I don't um, have anything yeah, intelligent to totally say about bizarre it. Is that I actually have heard of Azazel uh, because it is the it's the antagonist in a '90s Denzel Washington movie called Fallen, where he's like. Yeah, it's, oh, it's, that's where it's I totally heard of it. I, I really liked that movie when I was younger, and I haven't <laughs> seen it in probably like 15, 15 years. Uh, but Azazel was the demon, and then I, I, I pursued this just a little bit, uh, and they're the same thing. So here's an example of, of, of where, as the King James Version translates Azazel as scapegoat, some of the more 
scholarly modern uh, translations of the Bible just keep the word as Azazel. But that's not really helpful because that means that the goat's name is a demon. Is the goat a demon? Like, like what's the deal? I, I have no idea. <laughs> it's, it's really weird. Yeah, that's strange. <laughs> Another one that I've always been confused about, and I you hear a lot of different things, is in the Old Testament, I can't think of exact. I think it was in the book of Isaiah where they said... Um, Virgin, and that's how it's tra- it's translated into our um, like I, into the New King James version, um, and that's like um, Christians use that as a precursor to the Virgin Mary. But in Hebrew, it doesn't necessarily the word that they used in Hebrew doesn't necessarily mean virgin, but the Greek translation of the Hebrew Old Testament done in Egypt in, I think, the 100s-ish B.C., translates it into a Greek word that clearly means virgin. So you have, like, it's so complicated, you don't know what's what. Why would they translate it in this? Did they not have the vocabulary in Greek to express that? Was there a context that they had back then that we don't have now? It's like, you know, you're stepping into quicksand and you sink above your head. Right. I think that the Hebrew word kind of doubled for young woman and virgin. Is that, am I correct in that? Yeah, I think so. And it could have had, it was young woman, which was almost um, synonymous with virgin at that time. Right, exactly, exactly. I guess that's the, I guess that's why we'll never know exactly what it meant. Yeah. And there's, I mean, there's just so much of that, that when, how language was used 2,000, 2,500 years ago, and we're trying to pick apart, well, what did they actually mean there? It's a really... It's a really, it's an impossible right. thing. And like I said earlier, it matters much more in, in, in a sense, uh, in terms of literally the way people choose to live their lives on theological principles, it matters a lot more than if, if we had these same problems in the Odyssey or the Iliad. Again, just to go back to these two other ancient works, uh, because nothing's nothing's at stake in people's theological lives, in, in people's religious lives with these works today. But quite the opposite is true with Christianity. I wonder, like, I mean, I, I, I have to imagine that even today, somebody writing a book, it's going to get reinterpreted in different ways. And I wonder if there is a way to fossilize what people are thinking at one point in time. I mean, I'm, in a way, that's, it would be cool if you could do that, but in another way, it's almost impossible to do that. Yeah, I mean, I, I think the the linguistic linguistics consensus is that it is impossible. And, you know, we have, we, we kind of have an illusion or a delusion about the written word. It, it seems very, uh, it seems very static and unchanging. It's there in front of us on the page. We look in a dictionary and the dictionary says it means this, that, or that. Uh, but that's just not how it works. You know, that, that words change plain and simple. Time changes them. Context changes them. To wrap up this conversation, what um, what are some other aspects of etymology that really uh, excite you or something that you're looking to do more um, research on? Um, hmm. Uh, well, uh, hmm, uh, hmm, hmm. Uh, I, I have a few mini-series lined up in my mind. Um, I, I don't know if I'll actually get to do them uh, because I, I change my mind all the time, but at least what I have on the back burner is place names. Uh, And that's fascinating because, well, when an outsider, you know, when an ethnic outsider gives a name to a particular community or ethnic group or state, uh, it's not necessarily what that ethnic community wants to be called. And the word can fossilize some power dynamics for for example, that's that's one 
aspect of how place names are interesting or, or ethnic names. Um, another thing that I want to do is early American English. Uh, words from Greek philosophy. I mean, it, it's it's endless. The, the topics are just so vast. And uh, like I said, words are just my way of, of, of looking at history without, without getting locked into uh, a, a certain time period. Uh, wor- language is the theme. So that's it. It's, it's, all, it's all fair game. And I'm really excited to keep doing this for as long as I can, just looking at cool stories and things that have changed. I'm just, I'm, I'm really, really just obsessed with things that have changed and what we don't understand. And we think we understand. See, that's, that's the, that's the caveat, what we don't understand, but we think we do. Now that we've got just a little taste of your show, and I know people are going to want to go listen to it. How can they uh, learn more about your show, subscribe and listen to it? Sure. Well, you can just go to wordsforgranted.com and, uh, Download the episodes or subscribe from there. I'm on all of the uh, major podcasting directories. Um, and what about you, for my listeners? Um, well, my show, I have two shows, The History of the Papacy Podcast, which is a, um, like we said the, along the way, the papacy is one part of it, but I'm also talking about things like this, like the um the Bible and um, early Christian history and how all of, I want to, I've always wanted to look at how all the pieces fit together. And my other podcast really has nothing to do with Christianity or history at all. It's called Beyond the Big Screen, where I interview guests about a movie and really look at not just whether the movie is historically accurate or not, or if they had, um, you know, somebody wore three buttons on their coat instead of five. We're trying to look at the bigger picture and why certain things happen in the movie and how that relates to not only history, but also politics and government and religion. And so it's, um, it's a, fun show and that's called beyond the big screen you can find both of those at all the usual um podcatchers itunes apple Podcasts, but also at my website which is a to z history page you can learn about both of them uh yeah i have not checked out beyond the big screen uh really just the history of the papacy podcast which i am working my way through uh un- unlike the words for granted podcast you have a far greater back catalog just by virtue of time so i'm like i i, I may be 40 episodes in from the beginning so yeah I, i've i've got a ways to go What's the nice thing about the Beyond the Big Screen is they're not, um, it's not a series. I do have short series in there of one, maybe two, three episodes. I think three is the most right now. But um, you can pick and choose which movie the, actually the biggest series was on the movie Blade Runner, which was five episodes long. There was a lot to talk about with Blade Runner, believe it or not. Oh, yeah, I, I love Blade Runner. Oh, you should definitely listen to that uh, episode. There was I, the guest I interviewed. He's a political scientist, but he's also obsessed with uh, Blade Runner. And it's unbelievable. We we talked about the first movie, um, the three mini episodes between the first movie and then the one that was just released about a year ago. And then uh, the new movie, Blade Runner um, 2048. It was really cool. Uh, series of episodes yeah that sounds great have you uh ha- have you seen that new movie uh about paul like i i i got, I got this ad i had no idea that, that that this existed i didn't see any advertising for it or anything but uh i i got this ad while i was doing my biblical research and there's a uh paul movie out what's the deal with that I noticed that movie, and then I, I think I saw it as like a Facebook ad or a Twitter ad or something, and um, I never—I think um, there's not too many big-name actors in there. There's only maybe one big-name actor, and I was meaning to watch it, and then I actually f- completely forgot about it. But it seems like that's a popular genre these days where they put these movies out. There was the Samson movie that came out maybe about six months ago, and it was not a great movie. (laughs) But I think there's kind of a mill that puts these movies out. I think that Paul one seemed... Um, from I did do a little bit of reading about it, and it seems like it's a fairly accurate movie, and it's um, kind of religious-y. I mean, I 
guess you can't avoid that it's religious uh, movie about Paul. But some of the other ones, like there was one um, with Rafe Fiennes, I think, and he plays the soldier who um, actually crucified Jesus. <laughs> and I fell asleep in that movie. I think about five minutes into it, it was the it was that um, it, it was able to keep my attention span for about five minutes. Is am, am I right in seeing that Jim Caviezel was in the Paul movie? Yeah, I was saying um, that there's got to be something in the contract that yeah. you can't double dip like that. How can you be Jesus and another character? Isn't there? There's got to be something in the Hollywood um, bylaws about that. Yeah, Jim Jim Caviezel, for those who might not know, played Jesus in the uh, Passion of the Christ. Yeah, that's who who does he who does he play? I believe he plays um oh who does he I one of like the lesser known characters, like not the he wasn't Paul. I can't think I don't think Paul was a major actor. He played like Andrew or something like that. So I don't know how big of a role he had. I think he it's possible that he was just in there enough to put his name on the marquee. <laughs> sure, sure. But I think there is, there's a big, um, definitely a, a genre of that where the type of movie where they put them out uh, and they're maybe not always of the best quality. Well, I had a great time talking to you and I think we'll definitely have to do this again at some point. Yeah, I, I would love to, Steve. Thanks for having me. <laughs>